Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Leda Gliptis, Chief Client Officer at 10X, the provider of a cloud-based digital banking operational infrastructure founded by former Barclays Group CEO, Anthony Jenkins. The mission of 10X is to deliver an operating system to banks that makes them, by design, customer-centric rather than product-centric. It's an ambition nobody is better qualified to fulfill than Leda Gliptis, who's held digital innovation roles at BNY Mellon, Qatar National Bank, and consultant Sapient, but immediately prior to joining 10X was CEO of the 11FS Foundry, which also developed a digital banking technology. Leda, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and for the amazing introduction. Uh, and without wanting you to repeat everything I've just said, what is the story of 10X, including uh, founder Andrew Jenkins, yourself and, and the other colleagues, and indeed the funding of the business? What's the story of 10X? 10X is, um, as, as it says in its name, committed to making banking 10, 10 times better. Not a little better, but 10x better. Um, and the intent when Anthony founded the business was to build the technology he wishes he had when he was running Barclays and 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 before that the, the city institutional business. And I think there is something unique in a business built by ex-practitioners. I am, as you described, an ex-banker myself. I I held roles in in operations and, and technology growing up before moving into innovation and from there into fintech. But to a much smaller extent, I have experienced the challenges and frustrations of big traditional banks that are constrained by the investments they have made to their existing technology, by the commitments they have made to existing clients that they can't just switch off and shift, regulatory commitments, complexity of an estate that has grown over time across geographies through acquisitions, just very real, very complicated constraints in the here and now. So when these banks face into their digital ambitions, a changing landscape of regulatory requirements and new competition, they have to shift all of that legacy at the same time without compromising reliability, without compromising resilience, without compromising security, and retaining the ability to service existing business and grow. It's an exceptionally complicated space. And frankly, most of the challengers trying to do core banking better try to start small, solve small problems and start moving up the complexity scale. 10X is different in that we try to start at the top end of the complexity scale. If you solve these challenges for the most complicated and most demanding institutions, whose resilience, reliance, security, infrastructure, scale is the most demanding in the industry, and you do that well, doing things that are less complex will be a much easier journey than doing it the other way around. And coming with the credentials of knowing exactly what those problems look like meant that Anthony was the uniquely qualified person to lead this effort. Our clients think that. We're currently live with Chase here in the UK and with Westpac in Australia. Uh, we've just signed some more work with our partners, Westpac, and we're working with a couple more clients in other geographies that I'm not allowed to talk about yet. But <clears throat> all of those clients um, obviously buy into that vision, as do our investors. As you say, we have an incredibly 
um, impressive, but more to the point, supportive cap table where Chase and Westpac, our clients, were foundational investors, but also we have Ping An with us on the journey, the Voyager Fund from the from the get go, and more recently CPPIB and BlackRock sitting around the table being very nurturing investors, but also giving us immense credibility um, on our on our cap table. That was a very long answer to a very short question. Yes, and you, you you put a lot into that about about scale, about legacy, about wanting to work with established institutions, and you are working with. Uh, two uh, new entrants, both of which are very well-established financial institutions, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, and Marcus in by Goldman Sachs. Now, Marcus banking... is, not, is not one of our clients. Westpac's banking as a services. Okay, I don't know where I got Marcus from, forgive me. I mean, I would um... love it. They're more than <laughs> welcome to give us a call, but they're not one of our clients. I believe they've actually built their own infrastructure, but I'm not sure. Right, okay. Well, let's hope they give you a call after they watch this. Yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah, but but in 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 working with Tenex, how in, how important is that legacy problem? That's the one we hear so much about. That actually moving from um, and, and we'll talk about the TSB debacle in a minute. You know, moving from what you've got to where you want to be um, is not a risk that many banks want to take. So obviously, it's easier if you don't have a legacy. But the sort of clients you're trying to work with are going to have a legacy, aren't they? So how big a barrier is that? Um. I think, first of all, I think it's important to take a moment and say legacy is, a, is an indication of past success, right? The industry talks about legacy like it's a bad thing because it constrains and complicates what you do next. But legacy equals continued financial success for a sustained period of time. It equals clients and a balance sheet and profit. All of those things are actually really good things. They come with things. They come with systems, people, organizations, buildings. But the reality is that if you have legacy, you also have a thriving business. So wrapped up in this legacy is the concern to not disrupt the life of your clients, the communities you serve, your investors, and to carry on doing what you were doing while also doing the next thing. And that's where legacy starts becoming a challenge because it's very often expensive and cumbersome to maintain. And so different to the technology you need for the future that it's next to impossible to future-proof it. You have to replace it. Um, I think there are a couple of things that are changing that conversation because 10 years ago, it would be possible and in fact, very common for decision makers inside a bank to say that's, that's too much, that's a too far, that could be career-ending and not touching it. Um, but there are three things that, have changed inside and outside uh, organizations. And I think that is that is changing both the options and the mindset when it comes to legacy. The first is regulation. The regulators, particularly in the more advanced uh, environment, such as the UK and the European Economic Area, Australia, uh, Singapore, those areas where the regulator is really forward thinking. The regulator is setting a path and setting a tone and setting a pace that means that your COBOL-based mainframe will not be acceptable soon. And we're hearing more and more of regulators having conversations with incumbents saying, you're going to need to uplift your estate. So the expectation of the market is shifting and is rising and the regulator is very much setting a tone that means that the legacy systems are not just a preference. They will be a 
an unacceptable component. At the same time as the entire economy becoming digital and your legacy systems being non-viable. If you're trying to service a digital real-time economy with a batch-based COBOL mainframe, you will not be able to. You're just not able to. It's not that you won't do it well. You won't be able to. So the combination of the economy moving faster than um, some banking institution and the regulator being forward-thinking means that very, very soon it's a, it's a requirement. It's not a, an option. So your, your choices will be about how, who, with, and when, rather than if. And I think that's a pretty big shift. Um, the second shift is leadership. In the last 10, 15 years, the people who are young and getting started and curious about technology and fearless about transformation are now in decision-making positions. That 10, 15 years has seen a generation uh, that are much more comfortable with rapid change graduate to the next set of decision makers. The people we think of as sitting around the table are not the same as they were 15 years ago. There's some overlap for sure, but there's a, a, a set of decision makers and talent that are much more au fait with what we're talking about and we are seeing them make different decisions. First and foremost, the, the, the bass move in, um, in Westpac or Chase moving into the UK with a, a, a purely digital play is a leadership decision. And that leadership wasn't there 15 years ago, perhaps, but it very much is now. And then the third piece that I think brings it all together is that people like us, people like 10X, but also um, other players in this space are looking at how we can reduce the barrier to entry and the cost of curiosity. What used to be a big bang, big monolithic system, switch it off, migration to a new monolithic system, all the risk, none of the reward for five years. Nobody operates like that anymore. Things are much more incremental, step-by-step, step, smaller pieces, early wins, managed risks. Um, I think those three things coming together makes the transition away from legacy both inevitable, but also much less terrifying. What you said there about banks being COBOL-based and batch-based, prompts a, a thought in my mind that up to this point that um, I'm talking here about the UK I'm talking about my own bank among other things um, have kind of faked digitization faster payments is a good example of that where actually the banks remain on risk everything is still netted and batch processed through the RTGS system so in a way we have this sort of fake uh, digital payments system are you saying that we have now run out of road with faking it you've actually got to do this for real now in digitizing your offering? Uh, I love that question. And I need to be careful how I answer it because I may have Andy Smith firebombing my house if I say RTGS is fake. I think you're absolutely on the money saying that we as an industry have spent a very, very long time putting up. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago calling it, I want my bling where I can see it. Spending our time, money and effort on highly visible nuggets of digital capabilities, mostly centered around UX. So apps and, and, and web interface mm -hmm. that didn't necessarily go all the way down, as you rightly point out, that you may have a um, set of digital capabilities, but if the clearing system is crank operated, then you're not fully digital. Or if certain exceptions or certain conditions or certain currencies actually 
are not part of your estate, then you're not fully digital. So I think we have definitely been um, driven by a need to spend little and show a lot. Actually, it wasn't a need, scrap that. It was a preference because there was so much else to do that digital efforts were for a long time tied very tightly coupled to UX apps. So people didn't really think, well, actually, if I have an app that isn't plumbed all the way down, do I really have an app or do I have just complexity? Um, I think the limitations of that have become apparent in truly jarring user experiences and then more complicated offerings that we just can't support because they don't need an app. They need real-time digital connectivity. Um, I think the ability to put your money where you can see it and not invest in the plumbing is gone. Have we run out of road? I think we're definitely rapidly running out of road, both because, as I said earlier, the regulator is much more nuanced than what they expect to see, but also because the next set of capabilities can't be dealt with, you know, the whole idea of the duck gliding serenely, but pedaling like crazy underneath. You can't do that. If you want to have embedded finance, you can't hide the fact that under the surface, your infrastructure is older than me. You need to have capabilities that do everything in real time. So in terms of the next level of evolution, there is no road. You're absolutely right. You can't pick and choose. If you want to have an embedded digital solution, all of it has to be digital or it won't be embedded. And what are the implications of that for, for the public infrastructure, by which I mean in the, in the case of payments, the RTGS system, in the case of securities like the, the central securities depositories and so on? Do they, do, does the, the public infrastructure need to be in place? You, you can't simply as a bank change your own infrastructure and then find yourself interoperating with, with batch-based uh, systems still. So do these public and private infrastructures need to move in lockstep? Yes, they do. And I think that was part of the complexity that people tried, well, actually, there, there are two layers uh, to the complexity. Uh, one is people didn't know where the line between utility and proprietary value-additive digital capability lay, right? So nobody wanted to do as a utility what might turn out to be competitive. Um, but I think we know where that line is now. So that utility is, is as important. It has to move in lockstep. Um, that doesn't mean coordinated to the second, but it means that in the next years, that will have to be two to five, not five to 10. All of these components have to move in tandem or we're as, as slow and fragile as our slowest and most fragile component. Now, as you as you pointed out, um, the great thing about having a legacy if you're a bank is it means you've got revenues, you've got customers. So that is an, an advantage. Does it make sense for you to, as 10X, to work with uh, neobanks, challenger banks? I mean, that covers a very wide spectrum of, of institutions. I, I think the Bank of England has authorized something like 19 different banks in, in recent years. So mm -hmm. I know it means different things. And I guess those startup banks have to work with whatever the infrastructure is the public infrastructure is when they start as well. And it's probably a constraint for them. But does it are they attractive clients to you? A bank which has no legacy but also no customers. <laughs> um, 10x is solving a problem at its most complicated. 
That means that the less complicated version of the problem can also use the same solution. So a bank with no legacy and no customers doesn't have as complicated a set of technical problems. Uh, it will get them when they get to full expression, multi-geography, complicated transactions. So we're solving the problem at that end. Could we service uh, Anio? Yeah, of course we could. Are they more attractive to us? Uh, they're not more attractive for two reasons. One is we actually really do see that where you can have the biggest impact on communities and societies where people are actually genuinely using a service in anger. So the, the banks that are dealing with the consumers in, in great numbers are more pressing and therefore a, a more rewarding set of complex problems to solve. The second is that as a... As a startup, the, the challenge that they're all grappling with is what does the business model of a neobank need to look like to become profitable without needing to look exactly like an old bank? And nobody has really cracked that yet. So we're happy to service anyone who's going on that journey. Um, we don't work with any traditional neobanks yet, but we did work with Chase, who had no customers and no legacy. So for us, it's it's the the nature of the problem you're trying to solve, and and we're there to help. Whether you start with zero customers other than your beta users, or you start with an established book that you need to migrate. Yeah, I said I'd bring up TSB, so I, I better do that. And my my question here is uh, as follows: you you can go into a well-established UK retail bank, and you can say, well, look, it's not just um, us who want to put you onto a different paradigm technologically it's your customers want it and even the regulator wants it now how often do you hear people say well we watched you know tsb try to move on to a new operational infrastructure and look what happened to them it was disastrous for the customers and they got fined and the regulator was upset and it was as a reputational disaster for them how how often does that um this is far too risky for us to do actually come up in these conversations um well i've been doing a, a job similar to this for the last 20 years, right? So a lot, and it's not just TSB, it's a long list of, of, of technology swap outs that didn't go well in the last 50 years. And it tends to be the most recent one that is top of mind. Uh, increasingly, however, we hear it less and less because the reality is that there are a whole host of things that you need to do from a regulatory perspective that you can't do on the old systems. And there's a whole host of things that you wish you could do from a competitiveness perspective that you can't do on the old systems. Let me give you an example. When COVID started, this is my favorite example. Every single major bank had a clear instruction from the government to create payment holidays for mortgage payments for homeowners. These were optional, but they had to be available to everyone. And they essentially had some tweaks to the repayment schedule. So you needed to create an option. You needed to roll it out to everyone, but make it optional to opt in. And you needed to change the repayment schedules. On a system like 10X, making that change takes seconds to type it in minutes to have it approved by the right people. In a COBOL-based mortgage system, 
it took most banks six to 12 weeks of labor from a team of engineers of varying sizes, who some in some cases had to be brought out of retirement because COBOL is not taught at universities anymore. Um, that is not just the cost of doing business. That is the gulf between what is expected and possible and what our existing systems can do, which creates some regulatory exposure, which completely cripples um, a bank's time to market, which also means it cripples its time to value. So increasingly, it's becoming a, a no-choice journey. You can't stay with a system that, that binds you that way in a world that is real time. So everyone is talking about embedded finance now, but you know it as well as I do, that if you have a reconciliation system and a post-reconciliation system that works to a 48-hour 48, um, 48 SLA, you can't do embedded payments because your systems can't do end-to-end -end digital real-time awareness and visibility. So. All of the things you've talked about tie together. We are an ecosystem. We've talked about the ecosystem mm -hmm. for so long, referring to how the, the startups would play. But the idea is we're all an ecosystem. Money travels through so many institutions in order to do a full circle from money in your pocket, investment, pension, government fund, sovereign fund, and back again. All of it needs to essentially keep up with the economy. And I think that is the biggest thing that for a very long time, banks were looking at digital capabilities as options for a savvier toolkit. But the reality is in the last 15 years, while banks were playing around, as you said, in pockets, the economy has become digital. So it's not a, it's not as much of a choice anymore as it is a, an absolute essential requirement. Now you mentioned embedded finance more than once. You haven't mentioned, I don't think, uh, open banking yet. But it, it, and I suppose embedded finance and open banking are, are arguably different facets of the same yeah, phenomenon. But but the, but the main reason that these things have not progressed as fast as they should have done is these legacy systems. This this, as you've just said, banks have no choice about adapting to this world now. But up to this point, they have been obstructing progress in that world simply because they are not technologically capable of delivering on oh, the full potential of those. I don't disagree with you. I, I have a slightly more optimistic view, which is that embedded finance, banking as a service, is resting on a tripod. One leg of the tripod is the regulation, which has taken, I would say, the last 10 years. From If you look at CMAs, what, 2013, PST2, a couple of no, it's 2008. So we're looking at 15, 20 years almost of a regulatory journey that CMA, PSD2, open banking, open finance, regulatory pieces building on top of each other and maturing. And that I don't think could have happened any faster because both the regulator and the, and the market had to wrap its head around what all of those bits mean. So if the tripod has three legs, one is the regulation maturing, and that has taken 10, 15 years. The other leg is that becoming data-driven API-first institutions took quite a lot of thinking uh, around data schemas, data governance, how to build it, how do your old 
systems, but more importantly, your old products move to the new world? How do you price them? How do you distribute them? So those pe that piece has also taken a good 10 years to be built. And most banks now are quite API savvy. The third leg is the imagination to know what to do next. So although I agree with you that technological constraints have held us back, I think that the biggest constraint is that banks were looking at these new capabilities and couldn't quite work out how to monetize them. Whereas the last 10, 15 years have taken us on a journey of maturing technology, both in the economy and inside the banks, and maturing and, and increasingly sophisticated regulation. The final piece, the third leg to the tripod is people coming together inside banks and across banks and their partners and saying, okay, I understand the technology, I understand the letter of the law, but also the regulatory intent. I understand platform economics, and now I understand how I can actually do something creative with this. And I think that's why after all this time, we're beginning to see banking as a service come to the surface. Uh, embedded payments in the sort of hold sale space, embedded insurance, because that third leg to the tripod is finally coming together. People going, I have the kit, I need to do some more uplift, but I know which way I'm going. I understand the regulation, and now I know how to make money doing this. Now you, you brought up data and you brought up platform economics. And a lot of what we've just been talking about, embedded finance, open banking, for example, are really about the data flows. Yet you're dealing with, with banks, legacy banks, traditional banks, which don't just have legacy systems, they presumably have lots of data silos actually getting this data, let alone transmitting it to somebody through an APIs, yeah. is actually a very considerable challenge for them. So if I asked you, when you're on the basis of your experience with these clients and what you what you talk to these clients about when it comes to to data, what does what does how does that conversation run? What is what does data mean to the clients? And what does it mean to you as as 10x? It can mean something simple like we get a single view of our customers. It can mean lots of different things. Yes, it can and it should and it does. And actually, we have a white paper out on exactly that topic that I'd love for your listeners to uh, download and read and give us some feedback. Um, I, I would say for a very long time, again, it's been an evolution, right? And although nothing is moving as fast as you wanted, we are definitely seeing that evolution. Um, Ten years ago, when banks thought about data, they had this attitude of, I have it, I should be able to make money with it, but I don't know what questions to ask it. And then the next set of problems was, we sit in a, in a data lake, do I need to migrate all of it? Do I need to structure all of it? Do we start doing a sort of, excuse me, go forward data strategy where we just take a um, take a hit on everything we had up until now, because where do you even begin? So these were, overwhelming questions that have been again resolved by osmosis and evolution because the regulator has been very active in making it very clear which data is the, the banks to use which data is not the banks to use at all and which data the bank can be informed by but not use um, the second thing that shifted is that Banks had this view that they will have a look back to look ahead on data because that's historically how they had done MI. You look back at the numbers and inform your view on what you do next. 
But one of the things that we can do now, thanks to digital capabilities, thanks to companies like 10X, is have a real-time view of everything from your client's position and preferences and location to your corporate client's liquidity needs. Real-time treasury is something that wasn't possible a while ago. So the, the power of data in the moment is what banks are beginning to tap into. And that's where moving away from legacy to do something that isn't a little different, a little better, but it's so radically transformative to your business is how the, the risk and, and discomfort of going from what you have to something new that you, you're not familiar with is actually is actually managed because businesses are not looking at a system that's end of life and you have to go through all the pain to get something that's a little better. Businesses are looking at the possibility of doing things that sound like magic compared to the systems they currently have. And that is the biggest motivator. So for me, going from this static view of data lakes that you could potentially query if you thought of a clever question versus real-time views of your liquidity position, your treasury position, your credit position as a consumer or a business this is transformative and it's mind-blowing for someone who's been working you know with green screens and super users 30 years ago yeah so it's not just about um, the user experience it's actually about running your bank better as well exactly. could we talk, talk a bit about uh, about australia you mentioned you're working with with westpac now australia is very interesting because it seems to be more innovative on the banking front than, than some other jurisdictions we we could we could think of the Reserve Bank of Australia has built this new payments platform, which is capable of doing real-time payments for real rather than like faster payments, sort of faking it. Uh, but they also passed this Consumer uh, Data Right Act as part of a long-term strategy to make consumers owners and controllers of their own data, which in my view is a potentially revolutionary um, uh, development uh, uh, and will kind of move us away in a sense from, from the sort of platform economics of the likes of Facebook towards something which is much more consumer driven uh, and will force banks and indeed all institutions to, to start um, responding to what customers want rather than parking products and services in front of customers saying, you never thought you'd want this, but, but, but here, here it is. is. Yeah. So, so what are you doing with Westpac and how far does it, how far is it driven by the new payments platform and the Consumer Data Right Act? Um, first of all, let me say that it makes me chuckle every time you say we're faking it, but I can't, I can't argue with you. I can't disagree with you. Uh, I'm a huge fan of what the Australian regulator is doing. I think it's visionary. And I, I really like the fact that they're taking a stand as to what they would like the future to look like for consumers. And I, I'm seeing some of that from the FCA. I'm seeing that some of that from the PRA. I like that. I actually like an opinionated regulator who says, in a changing world and in a truly digital economy, the way I protect the consumer isn't just by giving you checklists like the way I used to do, but by having a much more active dialogue about what good looks like. So I'm a big fan of that. And I agree with you that they've taken a, a highly informed and measured view that will eventually take us to a very different place with a much more informed and empowered consumer. Um, what we're doing with Westpac is we're the engine under their very ambitious banking as a service platform that was launched uh, last year. Um, working with third parties, working with 
exciting entities such as uh, Afterpay from Society One. And there's a whole host of new partners coming in the next few months, creating a, a rich customer first set of um, solutions that in some ways compete with the traditional bank and in some uh, ways enhance it. So is it is in every way a, a business move, but it's also a technology move because they, they build a completely different stack with, with us and, and some other um, partners, which now they can go, okay, I'm looking at my institutional bank and I'd like to be able to do all of those really, really cool real-time um, informed solutions for, for my clients. I know how to do that now. And that's what I meant by saying you, you lower the cost of curiosity and then you you unlock a whole host of capabilities for, for your um for your customers. So our our partnership with Australia, uh with, with Westpac in Australia is super exciting for us because we get to work in the context of one of the most enlightened regulators in this, but also I think we get to work in a context that sets the tone for what will come next. Because we are seeing that every major regulator around the globe is looking at open finance and and moving in that direction. I wish they talked more to each other because in the detail, the provisions are not actually identical. So you, you don't have portability of solutions. If, say, Australia and the UK decide that they will extend their open banking regulations to each other, you'll have to rebuild certain bits in the detail. Uh, but as a direction of travel, I find as a consumer and a practitioner of digital finance, I find this the most exciting time to to be working in. I think you're. I'm right to say you're also working with Westpac on their transaction banking business as well. And if that encompasses, for example, the securities business, which also has uh, legacy systems, legacy processes, legacy procedures, and indeed legacy market infrastructures, although, as we know, the ASX is trying to build a, a blockchain-based uh, CSD there as well. Now, that speaks to me of, of, a, of um, a great deal of flexibility in, 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 your, in your core platform. You, if it's adaptable to retail banking on the one hand and wholesale transaction banking on the other, or are these, what does this tell us about, um, uh, about where Westpac is going to end up? Is it going to end up with a very flexible single platform spanning everything that it does? Is that the long term? Um... Mine, for sure. <laughs> I would love to be the single partner for, for Westbag. And uh, and we will absolutely do um, everything in our power to continue uh, giving them every reason to have confidence mm -hmm. in us. I think there I was, I was thinking about your problem, you know, what I said at the outset of being about customer focused rather than product centric. Yeah, well, I can do 100%. Yeah. I think there, there are two aspects to, to your question. One is, what do we do to make that possible? And the second is what the bank's journey is to, to get to that decision. Uh, and, and you're right in that 10x is, is highly extensible. Uh, there is a high degree of modularity and reuse. Now, there are certain things that are very, very different when you do transaction banking to retail. But actually, there are certain things that are very similar. And there is no reason to build two separate things like a traditional provider would do. You just need to, to understand what you're solving for. And that's where um, having a lot of ex-bankers in the team really, really helps knowing what it is you're solving for. So you don't have to replicate anything. But equally, you don't. You, you know when something is a distinct difference. So I would say you're absolutely right. 10X brings a lot of extensibility, flexibility, modularity. So it could and has absolutely the vision to be able to support any of our clients across their entire universal banking set of services. 
it means the world to us that our partners look at the work we've done, the delivery, the client relationship, the quality of the platform and say, yes, we will do more with you. There is nothing that gives us a greatest jolt of joy than an existing partner continuing to have faith in us. Um, obviously, it's early days uh, on our work with the Transaction Bank. We're very excited. As, as you know, that's the, the space I grew up in. So I'm very excited to be back in it. Uh, but more widely for, for 10x, it's a, a fantastic piece of work. And look, from our point of view, um, we will do everything in our power to be the partner of choice for the entire bank, for every bank we work with. Can I ask you how these transitions actually work? You, know, you said at the outset, most people approach digital transformation in a sort of cautious way and say, well, we'll try and digitize this bit. And if we're lucky, we'll be able to digitize some adjacencies or discover some other things we could, could digitize. The 10X approach is actually to, to look at the problem from the other end of the telescope and, and say, well, let's start at the top and totally transform your bank. So if you're Westpac and you're looking to move from your present operating platforms onto these this, this one or two uh, new operating platforms, do you gradually sort of migrate the clients across over time? Or is it a sort of big bang that you uh, detonate when you're ready to go? Banks will fundamentally have different risk appetites in this. Um, the big bang detonation approach has been how most banks have historically done it. And I am yet to see one that worked. Westpac is a fantastic example because what they've done with banking as a service is proven a new business model and a new technology stack simultaneously. So if you think about this, not from a technologist's perspective, but from a risk and compliance practitioner's perspective, it's all about risk mitigation, right? It's all about knowing known risks and allowing for the unknown risks and how you sequence and manage them. Westpac, by saying, I will go into a brand new business, banking as a service is a new PL vertical, and do it in a new tech, excuse me, doesn't touch any of the existing technology, but proves out the technology. So your, all your resilience, performance, scalability, all of those risks are green, ticked, and nobody's worrying about them by the time you think about migrating the first user from either the consumer bank or when it comes to that for, for the um, transaction bank. So what we're saying to our customers is the big bank approach was the only way we could do it then, but we don't have to do it like that now. Balance risk and reward is the first one. It's not just about risk mitigation. It's all about the upside. If, say, you bring 10x into the mix because you want to start having um, flexible credit offering tied to people behave, people's behavior and performance and, uh, sorry, behavior and, and preferences, right? So you, you launch that service and it allows you to test different solutions, go to market with differentiated offerings that don't cost a lot to maintain because this is digital and the cost to serve is lower. So you start having the upside of speed to market, speed to value, higher customer stickiness, before you say, okay, now I will migrate all my credit customers because I have proven the technology and also I've got a bit of upside. So risk managed, risk reward balanced. And then the other side of risk is what am I worried about? Bundle it and slice it so that you do it in smaller increments faster because everything moves faster when you're doing something in a truly digital fashion. 
and you will be done sooner than you would be if you did it as a big bang, net, net, from start to finish. And much less will have gone wrong because you won't have done any guesswork. Because if somebody says, what could go wrong on year five of a seven-year migration? The answer is you don't know. Whereas if somebody says, what are your risks if you migrate your dormant accounts and your people who are under um, witness protection in the next three weeks, you know exactly what can go wrong. I'd like to talk about the, the get down to the nitty gritty um, here. And I have three things in mind here. One is budget, you know, where does the money come from? Another is the IT department, whether they're a friend or a foe of what you're trying to do. And the third is the other people working in the bank, by which I mean the, the sort of digital talent they, they have available. Now, I don't want you to talk about all those three things in, in one go. Perhaps we could start with the, with the budget. Most banks are spending most of the budget patching up and maintaining their uh, their existing systems. I looked at some data which suggested banks are spending anywhere between 70 and 90% of their IT budgets just keeping the show on the road, leaving very little room, you know, 10 or 30% of the budget for actually changing the bank. My first question is, you know, how big a problem is that for you? Because you're going in there saying it's time to change the bank. Uh, I mean, I, I could wish, I, I wish I could tell you that it wasn't a problem, but it is. Um, and it is a problem because it's a handy excuse. It's not a reason, it's an excuse. If anything, spending 90% of your budget on something that is falling over is the biggest driver to change it, but it's a handy excuse. Your COBOL developers coming out of retirement. <laughs> Somebody, a client told me recently that uh, some of their um, senior architecture meetings looked like a ZZ Top reunion and <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. But um, uh, yes, COBOL developers coming out of retirement, right? And that's not a joke. That's happening in every jurisdiction I've ever worked in. So. Spending 90% of your time and money on something that keeps falling over, where the death of your engineers is a, tr is a risk that is being tracked by your compliance team, and I'm not making this up. Mm -hmm. um, if you say that this is a reason to not change, that's an excuse, right? So it's a leadership failure. So we hear it, but what we hear when we hear that is that this particular leader is not courageous enough or not informed enough, or not the right leader for the business. Um, can we take them on the journey? Yes. Is it more likely to happen when there's a change in leadership? Also, yes. What we are seeing a lot of is that that leadership shift that I was talking about earlier means that those, those guys, that the new generation of leaders, don't want to spend their time patching something that's falling over. Don't want to spend their time telling the business no. They actually have a different kind of ambition. And what we're seeing is either they go after a new business opportunity, like the banking as a service um, space in, uh, in, uh, in Westpac. And then they say, well, now I've proven this and it works. Let's use it for other things. And that's a different way of tagging the budget. The other is that we have an evergreen platform. So you never need to upgrade 10X. 10X upgrades itself for you. We're extremely unusual in that. And I think it's a it's an honest thing to offer your clients and the right thing. And I'm staggered that nobody else is doing it. But the reality is if you're one of the traditional vendors, you will reach a, a moment where a very expensive upgrade is coming up. And you're going to be looking at a bill of 30 to 50 to 100 million to 
end up in a place that is not too different to where you are, that's always a good moment to um to think about it. We find people go, okay, our system X is coming to end of life in the next two years. Let's talk. And then the third is um, places where the competitive landscape is heating up and people go, okay, my competitors or a neo is offering these highly nuanced products. I can't do it on Cobol. So the budget may come from different places um, and the IT department, to answer your question. Um, well, I'm thinking here, of, I don't know, your, your chief technology officer, you've got 5,000 people working for you, your bank's promotion and remuneration structures are geared to how many people work for you. And even if you didn't have all those problems, actually quite like having 5,000 people working for you, yes. are you going to be an obstacle? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes, for sure. Um our biggest competitor is bank CTOs thinking they can do it themselves. Right. Okay. I, I thought then. Yes, it is worse than you thought, and it's um, it's staggering that it still happens, and it happens in 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 definitely in, in smaller numbers, but it still happens. And you are right on the money. These folks have been rewarded for being siloed, for having an army of people, for creating bespoke capabilities. I was speaking to a friend, I won't name the bank, but very big American bank, who have taken Splunk, you know Splunk, and created their own version of it. That is not talking to the outside, outside world and has about a tenth of the functionality. So they spent all the money to get the Splunk license, and then they spent money and time to make it less useful. And that happens a lot in, in big banks. So you, you are right. The traditional IT department might look at us and go, I can build it myself. Uh, my view is off you go. I'll be here in five, six years when you realize you, you can't. And you can't because it's complicated and it's difficult and it's not even the, the thing you need. It's the utility to get to the thing you need. And if you spend six years thinking about this, you haven't spent six years thinking about what you're giving your customers. Your customers are not going to wait for you. Uh, that said, not every IT decision maker is like that. We're increasingly seeing people who go, I know what I need, so I know how to choose a partner, but I need you to take that away and do it for me so I can do the high-end, highly competitive, highly differentiated stuff for my clients. Uh, that technical decision maker is a friend. The technical decision maker who's ambitious and wants to move fast and therefore wants to partner with third parties that will accelerate, that's a friend. The technical decision maker that knows that they want um, deep, narrow expertise and they shouldn't have an army of people, that's also a friend. My, my third nitty gritty point was, was about the people. And in a sense, you solve one problem for them. They don't have to go through the soul-destroying business of trying to persuade talented developers and data architects and others to come and work for a big, fat, boring bank. But on the other hand, they have got all these people working there who are basically employed by the, the legacy technology to do manual links between, to cover the gaps, I suppose, between the legacy systems you referred at the outset to these banks all being built by, uh, by acquisitions. They've got thousands of different systems and basically the way they're hooked together is by people, most obviously with reconciliation clerks. What happens to those people? How big an obstacle is the fact that you've got all these people either to be made redundant 
or to be upgraded, upskilled in some way to work with a new platform. How often does that question come up as a problem for the banks you're talking to? Never. Never? And I wish it did, Mm -hmm. because you are very right. These people hold the banks together. And uh, I feel very passionate about the fact that people think of bankers and they think of traders, but actually the vast majority of bank employees are, as you say, reconciliation clerks and people chasing corporate actions around and cashiers and and people doing bond coupons. And the vast majority of, of banking isn't high-end Gordon Gecko sell by greed is good. It's actually people keeping things together, people keeping things running in jobs that are highly skilled, highly specialist, not necessarily well remunerated and not necessarily cited of how the world is changing. The the question of how do we upskill and retrain these people? How do we leverage their knowledge and their ability and their willingness to find solutions um, is one I, I feel very strongly about. It's not one that comes up. I live in hope that as these digital propositions mature and gain traction, they will come up more and they will find the whole 10X family willing and able to help without thinking because some of the most valuable skill set in banking, but also some of the most valuable attitudes and behaviors are in those people. I wrote an article a couple of years ago called Friends in Low Places. And it was all about how I've achieved some pretty incredible things inside big organizations. And it was always because someone pretty invisible to senior management helped me navigate some weird and wonderful obstacle And without them, banks would fall over. But I don't know how, rephrase, I know that senior decision makers are aware of it in the abstract, but they're not aware of it in the detail. It doesn't come up. Uh, I hope that it will start coming up as the digital capabilities we've been building take root and we're moving to the next phase where they're no longer the new thing and they become the main thing. That's when we need to make sure we don't lose these people and we don't let them down and we don't leave them behind because they kept us going all this time. I remember many years ago in a bank that you know well, that I worked at when we met, um, there was a major outage of a third-party system and the team did all European NAVs, all European net asset valuation calculations by hand over a weekend because it was unthinkable to them that the clients would be left wanting. And then they did a manual reconciliation when the system was up and running to make sure that nothing was missed. I remember, that, I remember that incident well. I even remember the vendor. Yes, August 2015. You're right. It was a remarkable um, to discover who your backup system was. Yeah, a team sitting in Cork Island. Yeah. Anyway, it's obviously something worth thinking about that um, how, how you adapt the, the people side of, of things and will we'll, um, give, give us an idea there for future finance to follow up with. Now, just talk a little bit um, uh, uh, penultimately about, about the cloud. You mentioned a minute ago that the platform is evergreen. It's sort of self-updating, self-healing, if you like. Hmm. Do you, is, is cloud adoption, you know, if you'd gone to a bank 10 years ago and said you've got to move to the cloud, they'd probably have thrown you out of their office. They would have done. Is it still, is it still an issue? Uh, increasingly not. So um, you're right. 10 years ago, 
I remember my CTO saying this will never catch on. <laughs> okay. Um, that is no longer an issue. Uh, we see very senior proponents who are deeply knowledgeable inside banks taking their own organizations on a journey because from a regulatory and compliance perspective, you're looking at and for different things. Uh, so we're seeing that maturity. We're also seeing, and we're speaking to a couple of uh, really visionary potential clients at the moment who are sitting in jurisdiction where the regulator is either about to okay cloud for financial services or uh, has done it. And they are chomping at the, beat, at the bit to be pioneers in a way 10 years ago, they wouldn't, and they would have wanted someone else to go first. So we're seeing that shift for sure. Uh, there's definitely still a little bit of a journey, um, but it's a journey that I'm finding people more willing to go on both from the regulator side. So what does resilience look like on the cloud? Mm -hmm. um, the first obstacle was getting to the place where we all admit that what we looked at isn't what we need to be looking at. So the regulator is, is thoughtfully having the, the dialogue. I'm seeing more and more clients having the right teams inside to have this dialogue. And, and I'm seeing entities that are willing to go first. That said, I have spoken to a number of very large banks, mostly in North America, who were like, I'll pay you to build this on-prem. And I like money. <laughs> it is tempting, but that's not our product. And you will, you see, I would say the last bastion is the really big banks in North America. Not all of them, but the really big ones seem to be like, yeah, but that's not how we do it. Mm -hmm. Everywhere else. Yeah. Um, and it's a combination of regulatory maturity as well as banking maturity. The cloud is, is a given. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned the regulators there. I detect regulators, um, and you said earlier in this conversation that actually the regulators are very pro-banks digitally transforming themselves, because I think the risk of carrying on where they are is, is too high. But they're also alive to this risk of moving to the cloud. They kind of like the cloud because it means there's less things are less likely to fall over. But on the other hand, if they do fall over, it's likely to be catastrophic. Is that regulatory um, uh, schizoid approach by the regulators helpful or unhelpful to you as you have these conversations with banks? So all well, the regulators are kind of in favour of you doing this or... Um, not. I, I would definitely say not all regulators are created equal, right? Not all regulators are there, mm -hmm. but the world is more connected now than it was 10 years ago. So I'm finding that in places like the UK, Australia, the regulators are best advocate for the type of technology we do. Uh, they now they anticipate to, to have a very clear view of what we do and, and have conversations with us, even though we're not regulated, we're part of the of the plumbing, right? They, they need to be comfortable. So you, you're having conversations with a regulator that <clears throat> 10 years ago, an entity like us wouldn't have. And it's absolutely the right thing. Uh, but but regulators who get it, who push for open finance, open data, cloud first, um, are the best allies we could have because they're they are accelerating the advent of the world we want to be in. We're also finding that in places where the regulator isn't there, we have particularly one jurisdiction at the moment that we're working with an incredibly talented group of people who want for their country what they've seen in others. 
So they're working with their regulator to get to a place that says, this is what it would look like for us. And that dialogue is absolutely brilliant. And we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, the US is complicated by the fact that you're not dealing with two or three regulators like you would in most other places, but 100 because of them multiple regulatory bodies and then the multiple layers at federal and state levels i'm going to ask you shortly what what your what your vision of the of the digitally transformed bank actually looks like but before i do can i just ask you one um second from last question which is how keenly do banks feel the, the competitive pressure uh, are they terrified that they will lose their business not just to incomers like Chase in the UK or to these neo banks, these challenger banks, but actually even to, I don't know, telecommunications companies or social media platforms. How keenly do they do they feel that the hot breath of competition on their neck? Is it is it a big incentive for them to change or not? <clears throat> Again, a very thoughtful question. Um, I think the answer is always. They think about it, they talk about it, but I think their understanding of it has shifted dramatically in the last few years because for the last, let's call it 10, 15 years, banks have talked a lot about disintermediation. They talked as if they understood that the biggest danger was not that you wouldn't need banks anymore, but that the most profitable parts of the banking food chain would stop being as profitable. So they looked at startups as potential threats to that sort of fatty bits of the value chain. And they uh, they looked at telcos and they looked at big tech. <clears throat> Disintermediation was the name of the game, but they didn't, although they talked about it a lot and thought about it a lot, they didn't necessarily pin their colors to the mass. They didn't necessarily go, this is what I will do differently. And there was um, undeniably a, a case of, feeling that you wouldn't necessarily get to choose whether you would do this, but you would get to choose when you would do this. So that feeling that banks and financial institutions controlled the timing of this journey was definitely there and it colored the way they thought about competition. That is gone now. The realization that that is no longer the case and the timings are set by the market, the regulator and your clients uh, has hit home now. And I think everything we've talked about is also informed by that. The second piece is that some of the challengers are coming of age. More to the point, some of the incumbents are hustling. <laughs> Maybe you weren't scared when Starling broke even, but you're definitely scared now that Chase is going gangbusters, right? <laughs> because it has all the flexibility and agility of a challenger and the seriousness, credibility and depth of pocket and, 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 and of a chase. Mm -hmm. So if you, and I would have said that you wouldn't have been right to dismiss Starling, but if you thought Starling isn't worrying, you can't not be worried about chase. Equally, when a giant, the size and shape of a Westpac enters the banking as a service game if you look around banking as a service has been something on the edges you haven't got another big big bank saying yeah i'm going to do this 
I know how to do this and I'm going to do this. So I actually think the biggest thing that will set the cat amongst the pigeons is the visionary incumbents who go, oh, I've got this. And that is now scary because you have the challengers, you have the regulator who wants better, you have an economy that is moving faster than you. And now some of your competitors are streaks ahead. If that doesn't focus the mind, I don't know what will. My last question, I promise. What, as you look ahead and you think about all the things you're doing, all the clients you interact with, these visionary incumbents, these challengers, all the things you've, you've talked about in this, in this conversation, do you have a clear idea in your mind of what, and I appreciate this can't be a static concept, it will change over time, but what will the transformed, the digitally transformed bank of the future look like in your mind? Do you have that vision clearly before you when you're talking to clients? I do. I do. Um, there are, for me, there are three things that will be radically different. Um, and we can uh, reconvene in a few years and see how, if I was right. Uh, the digitally transformed bank, transformed bank will own very little of its technical estate. Because if you don't own it and you partner or buy, um, you can swap out when it stops working for you, which means that I need to always be best in class. I can't stop worrying about it and expect you to come back in 10 years and buy the new version of 10X. But as a bank, you need to own as little as possible of yeah. your plumbing so that you can always move to the best possible solution and focus on the things you need to do well. So lower ownership of your own estate, work with entities like us, with partners who are deeply, deeply embedded and partnered with you, but run that thing. It's their problem, not yours, one. Two, um, banks will stop obsessing with customer touch points and will start understanding customer value add bothering your client and enhancing their life not the same thing talking to your client and enhancing their life not the same thing uh, we're seeing that happening it will happen much much more so really understanding that digital capabilities are about nuanced service not touch points and then the third piece uh, will be about speed a digitally transformed bank is a bank that doesn't groan when it needs to change something. That's when you'll know you've arrived. If you need to make a change to one of your provisions, to one of your reporting modules, to one of your schedules, to pricing, two, 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 you can do it with zero pain because you have created a system that has plasticity, which is what is required of you. Ada Glyptis, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to Future of Finance. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.